Welcome to the Dementia Caregiver Talk Show, a podcast to help you navigate the senior care maze. Learn and laugh with us as we discuss creative solutions and ideas to common and uncommon dementia care challenges and how to make sense of the senior care industry and options even if you're not a professional. Hey, this is Valerie. Thank you for listening in on our show today. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we had some minor technical difficulties during the recording of this episode. You might hear some background noises or occasional sound interference, and we apologize for that. But we hope you will enjoy this content nonetheless. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Care Partner Talk Show. This is sort of like an episode number two, and we're here with Dr. Tia Powell, who we interviewed on the previous episode, and we thought, you know, the conversation is really interesting and engaging. We should continue it a little bit. And with us is T. and Greg Phelps. And I know, Greg, you had a couple of questions. Yeah, um, Dr. Powell has just released a book called Dementia Reimagined, Building a Life of Joy and Dignity from Beginning to End. I did find some common ground because uh, Tia says in her book that uh, we need to address dementia with care rather than a cure. And positive approach says until there's a cure, there is care. So we're saying sort of the same thing, but how do we mesh the care and the medical community and everybody else? How do we get, how do we integrate everybody? Well, that is really um, an incredibly tough question. I, I do think that there is a growing group of both physicians and others who are very much aware that there is no cure here. Um, And there are, you know, there are researchers that are out looking for the cure, that's great, I hope they keep it up. Um, I do not unfortunately anticipate that they will get their work done in time to help me out. So I need to look about me and kind of find a better, you know, something, a a softer landing that's gonna be of use to me. And it's not gonna be in the form of a single magic pill that I can take. Um, So what would that look like? I I think that solution is going to be interdisciplinary. I think it is going to have to be individually tailored. I think if you're 85, when you get an illness, it's exceedingly unlikely that 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 illness won't reflect all those 85 years, that mileage. So it makes a difference. Did you have depression? Did you have a traumatic brain injury? Um, Did you drink a little bit of alcohol, none or a lot? Um, Substance use, all those kinds of things will make an impact. So I think all of those things affect your brain. We know they do. So I'm not actually holding out too much hope for a single pill anytime soon that's going to fix all of that in an 85-year-old brain. I do think there could be some help, but hey, as I say, I don't think it's coming for me. So I think we need to figure out lots of complicated aspects about living. We should look at housing. A lot of our housing stock is really not great for an older frail person. We have very poor access in a lot of our housing. I live in a, um, effectively a brownstone in New York City. Man, it's got some narrow, steep staircases. Um, That's gonna be tricky for me when I get older. So I'm gonna have to figure out, you know, um, how am I gonna navigate that? Will this place not be? an aging in place home for me. So I think thinking about, you know, housing in our communities, how can we do that? How can we live safely and comfortably? It's it's everything. How can we get food to people? We know a lot of people who are older live alone. And particularly if you have cognitive issues, maybe that you're you either can't cook well or you can't cook safely or your cooking's okay, but you can't lug groceries home from the store anymore. 
you can't go out and get stuff and carry it home and get up the stairs to your home. So thinking about the whole 360 degrees of what a person needs to do in her day to live safely and comfortably. I'd like to take it way back away from just medicine and think about how do we integrate a plan of care? And, and there are people working on all those different individual aspects, but what I'm starting to see, and it's very exciting, is people getting together. So last year I was at a meeting where there were housing experts, there were elder housing experts with people thinking about dementia, with people thinking about what's the cost mechanism, what does Medicaid and Medicare pay for, how are we gonna, how are we gonna put this all together? So we have a lot of work to do, but I do think it's starting to happen and it will require a respectful approach to people with many different sorts of expertise and it will have to be inclusive of many different sorts of people. A person living in a rural area, if you're living in rural Maine, um, what you need to be in your life safely may be very different than someone like me living in New York City. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna chime in because it's interesting, uh, the idea of independence compared to safety. And I think those values, I think we, we can make assumptions versus making an assessment about, okay, so if you had to pick, You'd rather be independent, you'd rather be safe. If you had to make a decision of one or the other, um, because how much do you value staying in your brow tone, even though you know it might not be real safe, versus it's just your place, it's your thing. And, it, and, and I don't, you know, even though I'd like you to be safer, you know, I've got to operate within the zone that you create that's an okay zone for you. And I think that for me is my big message, I think, when I think about this is engage and get permission engaging in permission together are so important getting connected really listening and reflecting what i think i got from what you said before i make assumptions about what i should be doing and and providing some well would you rather do this or that i mean cuz here's two options which one would you feel more more strongly about before we go further so we sort of know where we're talking about or have an idea of where you want to head cuz i'm here to support you and, and I would add, Tia, that I think the place we may be skipping a step is not actively involving the boomers and the younger boomers, because um, those are the people who are currently carrying a heavy load, who are misperceiving or perceiving, oh my gosh, I don't even know what to do with mom. What if this were to happen to me? And so that's where the fear factor, I think, sort of really kicks up in, in, in gear. So Greg, you got, got some other ideas for us to kick around here a bit. Well, it's so nice to hear two, two experts finding common ground because for years it seemed like people were working at, at opposites. But I, I do want to delve into one particular aspect as a further follow-up to what you were just talking about. And that is so many families, as, as Tia has mentioned, nuclear family, were blown all over the universe. We can't necessarily get back together and, and take care of mom and dad. Uh, so people end up in facilities. And a lot of families, a lot of people view that as failure. Right. So I'm going to ask Tipa and then I'll ask Tia. What, how do you address that guilt in people? Yeah, so I think disconnecting the idea that you don't care for somebody because you don't house with them. I care for my daughter, but she lives in Michigan. I live in North Carolina. The way I provide supporting care is, is different. Doesn't mean I don't care. The idea that I'm gonna be a 24 seven caregiver or care provider or care partner. No, I'm not, but I am gonna be a partner in care. And the giving permission to say, you know what? 
this really isn't a two-person deal. It never was meant to. The only thing you can do with these two fingers is smoke cigarettes and scoop hummus. Beyond that, you really need this third finger to really be effective so that everybody gets time away. And yet when you put them all together, that's where the skill comes in. And that's my OT background, sort of given a visual image and a, an idea of, yeah, we were very much alike, but now we're, we're not, we're somewhat separated. So we need this third party, whether it's a facility or an agency or another person to really make this work well for all of us. So we all get a break from each other because honestly, sometimes, you know, monitoring at a distance is a better idea for some of us who really crave independence and we need some time. And yeah, I'm willing to take a little safety risk here. Um, yeah, can we have a passive system? It's turning out, you know, those apps that Tia was off talking about earlier, they're coming online faster than people think because I just, I got an article the other day that was, there's a passive thing on the wall that even tells me, hmm, you know, he's getting up more at night. I wonder if there's a UTI brewing. So now it's time maybe to get up with the doc. Or, you know, he's, he's not settling this. I wonder if the pain is getting out of control there. So it actually passively monitors activity to give us a sense before there's any symptom uh, active symptom. Maybe there's something else we could do that put these together and we add the environment and, and those kind of things. So that's where I am with it. I really support all of that, uh, Tipa. And I'll just add, you know, I, um, I have two adult children and uh, I, I went to some expense to get them an education and they worked really hard. And now one is a doctor and one's in business. I am not considerate a great I, what I hope for them is not that they give all of that up, leave their jobs, and come take care of me. I really work my knuckles to the bones that <laughs> they would have like you know really interesting options and stuff i don't i'm I'm not hoping to be the break on all of that so I, I really I strongly support your notion that putting guilt on family members that is not the way forward, and in fact, it can be really dangerous. We see a lot of older couples where the spouse thinks, oh, I, just, I couldn't do that to him or her. I would never put them in a nursing home. So now you have two people in their 80s or 90s trying to live at home. Neither one can get up and down those steep, narrow stairs. So it, it's actually really quite risky and tough on both people to, to make nursing care facilities places that you don't have to feel bad about. That's really where I'd rather see us put our put our effort and really help people and families think about lots of different ways to solve this problem. Let's figure out what's a tailor-made individualized solution for us. One of my sisters-in-law has a dad who's well into his 90s and he lives about three states away from her. And he is a very independent older guy, lives alone. He's got somebody coming and going. And with his permission, she set up a sort of granddaddy cam in the um, living room. And she can sort of watch that. And she can sort of, it doesn't intrude terribly on his privacy. You know, if he's up and about and if she doesn't see him come out of the bedroom till quite late in the morning, she can call up a local caregiver saying, hey, listen, would you be able to go by? And see what's up. He's not answering the phone, not sure what's happening. So there's actually, you know, I know some people are bummed out about technology and they want a human person right there to do everything. Well, women giving up the work they've learned to do because those hands-on people are sort of saying it really needs to be a person. It's actually a woman's hand that they intend for the most part to take nothing from men, you know. But um, that is not a strategy that is implemented without enormous cost to a lot of people and families around the country. So I think guilt is unhelpful here. 
figure out a loving solution and be creative and feel free to be creative and use what you've got. Try new technology, talk to people. Um, but the, really the last thing I want from my family as a demonstration of in their lives and comments to sit and watch me um, in my home 24 seven. I don't want that. So <laughs> I'd like to find a better solution. So we have three people who like to talk and we have a clock that we're all watching. So we're going to have to wrap this up before Valerie pulls the plug on us. Um, <laughs> Dr. Powell, if I can start with you this time, three things in the book that you would really like us to sort of pay attention to. There's, there's usually a strong message, but in your book, I think there's more than one message. Hmm. So three things. All right. I, I want to start with people who don't have dementia and really push back against the kind of catastrophic image that so many of us have. I'd like you to do a kind of a thought experiment and imagine yourself with dementia and think about what you might like to pack today and bring along with you if you later end up in the country of dementia. So for me, I make a musical playlist and I think about some of the things I like to do now that might age well, like gardening or, you know, I'm a real bookworm. I love to read. Maybe I won't be able to read books, but I could probably still enjoy books on tape maybe or even kids' books. So that's one thing. I just want us to start imagining dementia as not so terrible, not the end of everything. So that's for one. For second, what practical, you know, I don't want to just stop at the thought experiment. What practical steps could you take? What's in your community? Look around. I mean, is there a community garden where maybe somebody could, maybe you could garden there now, and maybe when you're much older and frailer, maybe you could just sit there. If you don't have that community garden and you're up and about now, maybe this would be the time for you to start working on that and start thinking about how can you begin to build a place that you'd like to be plunked down in when you get there. Um, so I think that's another step. And the other is... Um, I think really coming back to this issue about guilt, of trying to help people um, some kind of forgiveness toward the self, toward families, toward really thinking about um, try a little tenderness, um, which is one of the songs that makes my playlist. Um, how could we, in a loving manner, really think differently about all kinds of things? What kinds of, you know, what can the government do? Can't do everything, but what ways could you efficiently use dollars to support people? And I really want to chime in on Tipa's notion. It's not only the responsibility of the person with dementia to save more so you can afford a nursing home, a person in their family to provide the care and take care of them. It's really on all of us. We're not going to find a solution that works for the whole community until the whole community is in there. And it is going to be all of us. You know, between one thing and another, there will be a lot of people with dementia in the years to come and a lot of people caring for them. Thank you. And, and Tipa, three things from, from today's discussion. First is, um, I'm struck again about the idea of opening the door and not being so scared of what's on the other side of it. Um, and I am so supportive of that. But I want people to stop looking at people, whether they're even at the end of the disease, as something awful, but still find, and that's where that whole gem idea came from, is let's find what's still beautiful inside there. Yeah, that's an oyster shell. I mean, oyster shells are ugly, but if you spend a little time around oyster shells, sometimes you start to learn what's in there. And I'm really such a strong advocate of building the network underneath that brings us together, that opens the door to sharing between professionals and family because we're all part of a family and that family is humankind 
and dementia is an issue for humankind, not for just medical professionals or legal professionals or political professionals. It's really all of us coming together and figuring this out because just like any other kind of situation, if we stay in our separate pods, we all we do is want to argue with each other about pieces of the pie instead of sort of going, okay, so here, here's what we got. What can we do with what we got? Because that's all I got. This is what I can put out there. What can you put out there? And if we put it together, what do we have? And I think this conversation says, yeah, we have individual people out there who are starting to also see it in a very different way than people have been told to see it, which is to see it with fear, see it with loathing. Let's fight Alzheimer's. Let's, let's beat this thing. Let's, let's eliminate it. But if I'm the person living with it, what does that say you want to do with me? I'm, I'm not sure how you do that. And yet we know hospital care is not the place to go. So why do we continue to spend buco bucks, like so many millions of dollars in the last part of life in a hopeless activity when we won't put any funding in the States? Now, Canada, you're a bit different, but you still do a lot of stuff there. Um, where people who have dementia, that, that's not even an end game. Why are we going with that end game? There's no cure for this disease. We got that. So why are we spending so much money on that end of it and none on the front end? That's just illogical. So that's what I'm reinforced again. Yeah, we got to keep going. We're not done. We've got a lot of work to do, but it's work to do, not a war to fight. Tipa, thank you very much. And Dr. Powell, thank you very much. Dr. Powell, uh, author of a new book, should be in the bookstores by the time people actually hear this podcast, uh, Dementia Reimagined, Building a Life of Joy and Dignity from Beginning to End. Thank you again. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody.